BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So our question for this hour, how far will the Republican Party go to steal the 2022 election? And, you know, the bottom line is that they will do a lot and they are doing a lot in state after state after state. This corrupt Republican Party, the wholly owned division of corporate America and billionaire America, they've basically dropped all pretense of having any kind of governing philosophy other than deregulate business, cut taxes on rich people, cut taxes on big corporations. They serve the oligarchy, or they serve the process of transforming America into an oligarchy. And we'll, we'll be talking a little bit more about this with uh, reporter Lee Fong from The Intercept. This is troubling. Anyhow, we've got a huge show today. Jamal Abdi is going to be here to talk about Iran's newly elected hardline president. They refer to him as the butcher of Tehran. What does this mean for U.S.-Iranian relations and for that matter for the region? I think there's a larger issue here. We'll get into that. But I want to start with, I mean, they've got this new shtick, you know, that critical race theory. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know, they're trying to teach white people to be embarrassed about being white people. No, that's not what critical race theory says. Sorry. And Ted Cruz, you know, it's uh, to make little white kids feel uh, inferior, feel, you know, embarrassed. No, <laughs> but of course, they're lying through their teeth. I mean, back in the 1960s, the Republican Party was all hysterical about people smoking pot and being against the Vietnam War and open homosexuality. That was a big phrase for the Republicans in the 60s. In the 70s, they were freaking out about black people protesting police violence, the so-called cities on fire, right? Every single one of those so-called riots, every single one, where neighborhoods got torched, every single one of those in the late 60s and early 70s was provoked by an incident of police violence against unarmed black people, 100% of them. But the news coverage and the Republicans, you would think it was just black people behaving badly. And Richard Nixon incorporated this into his Southern strategy in 1968. He doubled down on it in 72 in that election and won by a landslide. He got white people out to vote for him like there was no tomorrow. And then through the 80s, you had the Republicans working as hard as they could to destroy labor unions and freaking out some more about black people. 1988, George W. Bush running his Willie Horton ad, black people are coming to get you and your wife. And then in 1980, of course, when Reagan was elected, he flipped the entire Republican Party. The, the GOP prior to 1980 had been pro-choice. And Reagan flipped them in 81 to being entirely in favor of forced, forced pregnancies. And then the 90s came along and the GOP, the Republicans were hysterical that Bill Clinton might have had sex with a consenting adult in the White House who wasn't his wife. Oh my God, impeach him, spend $74 million investigating, published a huge, you know, it's, but what they were really doing at the same time was they were deindustrializing America. This happened mostly in the 90s. We lost 50,000 factories, not 50,000 jobs, 50,000 factories in the 90s. Most of them went to China and Mexico. 
And this was a this was a, a process that had been worked out during the Reagan and Bush administrations. They 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 revived the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, the GATT, which and then used that to create the World Trade Organization. And they negotiated NAFTA. It wasn't passed until Bill Clinton became president, and it was an idiot move on his part to do it. But you know, this was a Republican uh, process. And why did they want to deindustrialize America? Why did the why was the Republican Party so enthusiastic to send fifty thousand factories overseas? Because it was part of their campaign to kill the unions. Manufacturing jobs in America were largely union jobs. Don't forget when Reagan came into office. A one-third of the American workforce was unionized. Today, it's 6% in the private economy. It may even be down from that now. I don't, you know, it's uh, what COVID has done to that. So anyhow, that was the 90s. Then in 2001, Osama bin Laden came along and, and said, you know, uh, if we attack America, it's going to cause George Bush to go all nuts. He's going to turn America into an authoritarian state. He's going to bankrupt the country. He's going to start war. I mean, Bin Laden predicted it all. And Bush did it, like as if he was following a playbook. Yes, let's have two multi-trillion dollar wars. We spent something like $5 trillion now in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we didn't even get a lousy t-shirt out of it. And there's millions of dead human beings as a consequence of it. Also, that George W. Bush could get himself reelected in 2004. He had declared in 1999 that if he became president, he was going to, well, in fact, I've got Cindy Sheehan talking about it here. Can you get the 360 up? Here you go. As a matter of fact, in interviews in 1999 with respected journalists and longtime Bush family friend, Mickey Herskowitz, then Governor George Bush stated, one of the keys to being seen as a great leader is to be seen as commander-in-chief. My father had all this political capital built up when he drove the Iraqis out of Kuwait, and he wasted it. If I have a chance to invade, if I had that much capital, I'm not going to waste it. I'm going to get everything passed that I want to get passed, and I'm going to have a successful presidency, end quote. And her son Casey went off to that war and was killed. This is a mourning mother. So that was the first decade of the, of, the, of the 21st century. The second decade of the 21st century, which just ended you know, at the end of last year, uh, saw the Republican Party openly embrace fascism with Donald Trump and going after black people and Hispanics and you know, rapists and muggers and s-hole countries and all this kind of stuff. And now in Arizona, you've got Republicans openly in defiance of federal law. The federal law says that uh, ballots and machines and voting machines, this is from the, from the Help America Vote Act, George, Bush, George W. Bush's 2002 legislation. The Help America Vote Act says that it is a crime. It is a felony crime. You can go to prison. If you're an election official and you, and you distribute and you, and you share those ballots with somebody who's not authorized to have them or those voting machines. And you've got, you know, this, this QAnon company in, in Arizona. And now they've taken a bunch of the machines up to a cabin in Montana to deeply inspect them. I mean, down in Florida, you've got Republicans who are running ghost candidates. This, it looks like they've won, won three, three uh, different statewide or state campaigns, you know, state Senate, state representative down in Florida by putting up somebody, say there's a, the Democrat is named uh, Garcia and the Republican is named Smith. And so what the Republicans do is they'll find some random person named Garcia and put that person on the ballot without a party affiliation. And it'll drain, and you know, so they'll pop to the top of the ballot. And that'll drain enough votes away from the Democrat with the same name. People will think they're voting for the Democrat when they're not, that the Republican wins. Now, this is, by the way, illegal. There have been a few people arrested around this. And now we have 14 states that have passed laws making it harder for young people, older people, the Social Security voters, black people, low-income folks to vote. And, and you've got you know, similar legislation pending in 30 states. And this newest strategy is, you know, to, to piss off white people by saying that you know, the black people are promoting, or Democrats are promoting critical race theory, and this is causing you know, little white kids to feel guilty about the color of their skin. Come on. 
I mean, it's literally making this stuff up. You got states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, where a majority of the voters in the state, in the statewide elections, voted for Democrats for the House and for the Senate in their states. And yeah, you end up with a Democratic governor or a Democratic attorney general, but the legislatures in all these states are still overwhelmingly controlled by Republicans because of partisan gerrymandering. So you've got all this going on, and then lording over this entire enterprise is this giant network of right-wing billionaires that has more employees, more offices, and a larger budget than the Republican Party itself, the so-called Koch network, and there's others now. And they don't really care about race or critical race theory, but they're happy to promote this stuff and the great replacement theory, you know, Tucker Carlson's kind of their spokesperson, to freak out white people to vote for Republican. You know, it's, they've racialized our elections. And now the Texas Republican Party is trying to recruit 10,000 so-called poll watchers to show up in minority and student neighborhoods and intimidate people. So how far will the Republican Party go to steal the next election? I'm very concerned that they will go a long, long way, and we have to pass the For the People Act. And, uh, you know, thank God, Schumer's going to call a vote on it this week. We will see what happens. This is going to be a critical week. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Both the For the People Act and the infrastructure legislation. Uh, Schumer and, and Biden are pushing real hard this week. So let's see what happens. Michael in Crestline, California. Hey, Michael, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Um, it seems a shame that the Enlightenment didn't take and we are infested with believers. If you believe one thing, you're set to believe anything. And I came across this little one sentence that says, all religions are anti-democratic because there is no voting. Mm, yeah, probably, because the idea is some divine being or you right. know, has, has chosen the head of the, of the church. Or in the case of Buddhism, you know, the divine being has reincarnated as the head of the church. Um, so there's yeah. no progress or change allowed. Well, that's, but see, I don't think that's on its face necessarily positive or negative. You know, I mean, you, we could debate that. The issue is that when these anti, and that's a great point you're making, Michael, that when these anti-democratic institutions become involved in small-D democratic politics, in the politics of a republic like our nation, then their anti-democratic impulses really start showing. And well, yeah, because it's all about your tribe. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Thank you for that, Michael. That, that was a good one. Robin in Kingston, Washington. Hey, Robin, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's up? Hey, Tom, I wanted to give you an update that I called in about two years ago. I was unconstitutionally arrested on the 4th of July 2019 by the Kitsap County Sheriff's Department while just standing up some message boards very quietly and out of everybody's way. In pu on public property? Park. Yes, wow. in, in the Mike Wallace Park in yeah. the port of Kingston, Washington. And uh, so it was illegal, and they subsequently had me arrested again for another process that was determined by the federal court in Tacoma as being illegal. And I wanted to just uh, report to you uh, just kind of a couple of things. Number one, I won, and me and my great lawsuits, uh, attorneys from Seattle won against the Port of Kingston for violating my First Amendment rights. Wow. And also for the Kitsap County Sheriff's Department for violating my First Amendment rights. And it's a considerable sum of money, which You're is You're suing cool. for damages. Yeah, and so I bought a solar system for the house and paid off my mortgage, and so it's really cool. Yeah. But I wanted to tell you, yeah, but it was all peaceful. It was all legal. I never confronted. I never broke a law. Right. I always was asking. What your sign say? This, I had three of them, and it's funny that you use the word sign, because when you use the word sign, that puts you into legal understandings, okay, of definitions of the word sign mm. in lawmaking. Unfortunately, signs are not First Amendment speech, and that's where they went wrong. Huh. Okay, so this, I had three of them, actually four messages. One was Greenpeace, yes on both, elect matrilineal governances, and then I had a really big banner that had on reverse sides, okay, save democracy, vote, and then the other is save Earth. 
Wow. And, yeah, these aren't yeah. even particularly political. I mean, it's just kind of straightforward, good stuff. Robin, thanks for, yeah. sh- for sharing your story with us. Hopefully it's an inspiration to others. Yeah, uh, I, I'll call in some more, Tom. I got some other things to share about that. Okay, great. You'd be Thank you, Robin. Good to hear from you. This is from the Orlando Sentinel. Investigators searching for the source of more than half a million dollars spent last year in support of spoiler candidates that helped Republicans. Oh, I told you about this, didn't I? Prosecutors have charged now former Republican state senator Frank Arte with five felonies in this case. These are the the no-party candidates. They were financed with $550,000 in donations from a nonprofit that doesn't disclose its donors. This is Big Business Lobbying Group Associated Industries of Florida. And in this case, it was uh, Rodriguez was the last name of the ghost candidate and the name of the, uh, the Democrat. Meanwhile, over in Wyoming, there is a politician by the name of K.W. Miller. He ran for Florida's 18th district last year against uh, Congressman Brian Mast and lost. And so he has now gone to Wyoming. K.W. Miller, and says he is leading the charge to oust Liz Cheney. He's organizing this primary against Liz Cheney, and some of the candidates are openly boasting, a great piece by uh, Brad Reed over at rawstory.com, many of the candidates are even boasting that they attended the January 6th demonstration in D.C. Now, they're not bragging that they went into the Capitol, but we were there with Donald Trump just before. Right. But this guy, Miller, he went viral... This is how he got, you know, essentially famous, and he's now, like I said, in Wyoming, leading the charge against Liz Cheney. He went viral by tweeting that Black Lives Matter was an excuse for white women to, quote, fornicate with black men, and he went on to allege that Beyonce is a Satanist. He also tweeted, or actually it was a Facebook post, an all-caps Facebook rant where he referenced his own, all-caps, titanium balls. I wonder if Ted Cruz wants to talk to him now. It's like, you know, it's, you might be in violation of our sex toys laws down in Texas. Well, actually, he's in Wyoming, though. I don't know if Wyoming has laws against sex toys or not. And life is getting very, very strange. But back to this question of how far will the Republican Party go? They're lying and their media about critical race theory. You know, and race always works for the Republicans. It has since, since the 1960s, you know, when the Democratic Party embraced the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. That was when the Republican Party said, OK, we're now the party of the white people, pure and simple. So number one, they're doing that. Number two, they're trying to criminalize voting. Some of these states are passing laws that say that if you fill out your voter registration form wrong, like you forget to put your middle name in or you you spell something wrong, you can go to prison. I mean, that's how wild this has gotten. I just, you know, I'm not discounting any possibility when it comes to what Republicans are going to be doing next year. What do you think the polls are going to look like when you show up? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Is there going to be a bunch of jackbooted thugs with MAGA hats on with semi-automatic weapons standing outside the, the polling place demanding to see your ID? You think? Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. 
netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So I have said many times, I've been saying it for many years actually on this program, that in my opinion, Li Fang is one of the very finest investigative journalists working in the United States of America. He's over at The Intercept now. Theintercept.com is the website. His Twitter handle, L-H-F-A-N-G, as if, as if it was pronounced Fang, but it's Fang, or at The Intercept. Li Fang, welcome back to the program, Lee. Tell us about this uh, leaked audio with Joe Manchin and No Labels. First off, what is No Labels? Tom, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be on the show again. We published this audio that we obtained exclusively last week, and it's a Zoom call. It lasted about an hour, and it was hosted by No Labels. This is an organization that was launched about 10 years ago by Nancy Jacobson, a very powerful political player in Washington. And the group has very laudable goals on paper. You know, it's, it's against partisanship and polarization tries to bring the, both parties together for more working across the aisle. But what critics kind of allege and have alleged over the, the years is that if you look at the donors to this group, it's overwhelmingly wealthy hedge fund managers, some of the, the, the biggest hedge fund managers in the country, the biggest private equity fund managers in the country. And the type of bipartisanship that they seek is the consensus around uh, preserving tax cuts or you know, preferential tax treatment to these types of leading lights of Wall Street, uh, the finance industry. And they have funneled tons of money into elections to moderate Republicans and conservative Democrats and prevented aggressive advocacy on Capitol Hill. Any effort to claw back the filibuster, any effort to pass progressive economic legislation. So this group sponsors this call and Joe Manchin shows up. Tell us what happened. Well, all eyes in Washington are on Joe Manchin. He kind of has the keys to the rest of the progressive legislative landscape because, you know, it's a very closely divided Senate. And he uh, is seen as the deciding force both on whether the filibuster should be reformed and how infrastructure that bill will be passed through reconciliation with only Democratic votes, 50 votes, or will it be a bipartisan bill and therefore uh, clawing back the big, some of the biggest provisions of, the, of that proposal, taking away some of the tax hikes on private equity, on hedge funds, and uh, of course, with the filibuster comes the rest of the of the of the Democratic agenda, whether that's voting rights, civil rights, other reforms that have been proposed. And Manchin has not really said much publicly about where he stands. What's interesting about this hour-long call with donors is that he provides more clarity on his thinking more specificity on, on, on where he stands on these, these issues than he's ever given before in the public. Hmm. So, you know, he's given, in the, in the public, he's been vague. He's been, he hasn't really described where he stands on, on all of these issues. But in private, he, he's going provision by provision, explaining where he stands, telling them that, they, that he will give the exclusive on his particular ob objections, and he will provide it to these donors. So what specifically, so here's Joe Manchin talking to billionaire donors and he, and, and, you know, hedge fund guys and, and whatnot. And what's the essence of what he said? We're talking with Lee Fong, a reporter for The Intercept. What's the essence of what he said, Lee? Well, here's one example. H.R. 1, the For the People Act, that's mm -hmm. the kind of omnibus government reform, voting rights reform, campaign finance reform, gerrymandering reform bill the Democrats have. It's all bundled into one. It's a lot of issues that's been talked about over the years, and you know, many say that it has increasing importance given the the push on on the state level to to tighten voting laws by Republicans. Just the previous week, so two weeks ago, Manchin published an op-ed in a major paper in West Virginia saying he he only opposes this bill because it's a partisan bill; it doesn't have any Republican co-signers. But on this call with donors, he says. 
look, the actual reason I'm opposing this, it's not just the partisan angle. It's the fact that the bill takes away the power of secretaries of state to purge the voter rolls every two years. He says we got to preserve that power. He Whoa. also says that he also says that same day registration, which many states have now enacted, is problematic because he says that that just increases the chance for undocumented people, illegal voters, uh, to, to vote in elections. And, and look, there are parts of his state that don't have internet access. If they don't have internet access, how do they verify the names of people who come to vote? So he's, he's and, he, and then he goes on to say, if you if you listen to the audio, uh, Nancy Jacobson, uh, folks on this call, I will send you a detailed list of my other objections. So he's so he's he's listing his, his objections and being very detailed there. But if you listen to his speeches when he goes on the radio, when he when he wrote that op-ed for his, his hometown paper, he doesn't list any of that. He doesn't right. say any of that. So it's, it's, now one of the you get two. Go, go ahead. ahead. Okay, one of the provisions in the NHR one in the For the People Act basically blows up Citizens United. It starts to regulate dark money. It requires disclosure of donors. I noticed I'm on the FreedomWorks uh, email list. You know the the thing that the Koch brothers invented way back in the day, and they're referring to this now as the Corrupt Politician Act. <laughs> I've you know I've been saying for some time we always need to put the word corrupt before Republicans. Well, they're doing the same thing to us, but they're quite hysterical about the fact that the For the People Act will force basically out right-wing billionaires, you know, who, who <laughs> run this thing, to disclose the, you know, who they're giving money to and which organizations and which politicians. Is that part of Joe Manchin's objection? Okay, here's the weird part of the call. He says that he actually likes the dark money provisions. He wants more transparency. But he says, why aren't we doing that? But that's actually in the bill. And then he says, you know, what we need to be doing is make sure that we're, we're applying these transparency standards in terms of dark money not just to businesses, but to unions and to other wealthy individuals. But again, that's in the bill. So mm -hmm. I, why he's making why he's making this as objection, saying you know we need to focus on this, but it's already in the bill. It's not really. Is it clear. possible he's just he's uninformed? Saying, you know, I I can't say. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, right. he's a very savvy politician. He knows that dark money provisions are actually some of the most popular among voters. People hate these dark sure. money ads. These you know. For the whatever, for the mothers and babies that uh, you know, groups that they come in and, and dump tons of money into elections. Everyone hates them. Yeah, and nobody knows where the money's coming from, and they've always got weird names, and you know, it's yeah. So, uh, how? Uh, last question. We're talking with Lee Fong, investigative journalist with the Intercept, uh, theintercept.com, L-H-F-A-N-G on Twitter. Lee, what you know has Joe responded to this blockbuster article and the audio tape that you put out there yet, or at all? And if so, how? He's responded indirectly, which is after the audio came out, and he said that, you know, he, he made other plan announcements to the donors saying that he planned to uh, co-sponsor the John Lewis Voting Rights Reform Act and then maybe take parts of H.R. 1 and stick it in there and then mm -hmm. pass a far more pared-down bill, which, again, w wouldn't actually have the dark money provisions. Right. But then he hadn't renounced that publicly. As soon as our audio came out, he then announced it publicly. He started uh -huh. talking about some other filibuster reform ideas. I mean, there's a lot more in this tape that he hasn't commented on even implicitly, but, you know, it seemed to be like, you know, in politics, it's hard to to, to show causation. There's a lot of correlation, and the timing is very suspect that he suddenly announced all this stuff right as we hit publish. Right. And uh, if, if I may, one last question. How do you, do you have any insights into how the Democratic caucus in general is trying to coexist with their members who are essentially openly sold out to big money. I, Joe Manchin, you and I both know, Lee, is not the only uh, Democratic senator who is in bed with no labels. No, that's right. There are a lot of others. Kristen Sinema in, uh, in Arizona is another leading kind of no labels candidate politician. But, you know, it's hard to say. I think a lot of these lawmakers, even the more conservative ones, if you ask them privately, they don't like dark money. They don't like big money. It's, it's how they have to have these tough elections. It's how these are Republican opponents are funded but they all kind of understand that democrats do it too they you know both parties do this to an extreme degree it's kind of part of the game so and they don't they're scared of kind of unilateral dis disarmament they're, they're afraid that you know they don't have the tools for re-election i think a lot of democrats are private like if you, if you kind of get them away from the cameras and talk to them on background they're very conflicted
Yeah, I can imagine. It's a tough time. But, you know, I, we can, I, if nothing else, Bernie Sanders, I mean, he did a lot, too. But, you know, Bernie Sanders with his primaries and, well, for that matter, Barack Obama, you know, proved that you can raise enough money from the grassroots now to launch a serious campaign. So you would think that they'd be ready. That's a good point. Yeah. Lee Fung, uh, TheIntercept.com. You can tweet him at L-H-F-A-N-G. Lee, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's always great talking with you. Likewise. Take care, Tom. Thank you, Lee. Look forward to the next time. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. On the line with us is Jamal Abdi, the president of the National Iranian American Council, NIAC. NIACouncil.org is the website. And Jamal's Twitter handle is J. Abdi, A-B-D-I, or at NIA Council, or at NIA Action. Jamal, welcome back to the program. Iran just had an election, and the guy that they selected to run the country, or administer the country, I guess would probably be a better way of saying it, is uh, sometimes referred to as the Butcher of Tehran. Tell us about the election, who this fellow is, and what it means to uh, Americans in particular. The winner of this election was Ebrahim Raisi, and he was hand-selected by the Supreme Leader. And, you know, the elections in Iran, they're never free or fair. They're always consequential. And I think this election in particular was, some people are calling it a turning point, but it was the most sort of highly stage-crafted event in the Islamic Republic's uh, history. And as a result, so... The way that these elections work is there's a guardian council. They vet candidates on if they are eligible to run based on uh-huh. do they support the system? Are they, you know, uh, pious enough? And, you know, usually there's games that are played here and, you know, you have kind of shocking disqualifications of the past. Like you had Rafsan Johnny, who was kind of a father of the Islamic Republic, who was disqualified in the 2009 elections. And uh-huh. a lot of people at that point said, this is wild. They're cracking down even more than they normally do. And sorry, not 2009, 2013. This year they disqualified, you know, the former one of the Larajani brothers, who is also, you know, uh, part of the system and widely viewed as being the most likely next president. But they had aligned with the reformists, and so Larajani got disqualified. Uh, you had others who were disqualified, and, you know, Ahmadinejad, for instance, was disqualified, the former president. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really viewed as the field was completely narrowed, and all the potential obstacles for Raisi to win were taken off of the field. And there was one kind of token, you know, moderate reformist, not somebody super well-known, but in past elections, the person that squeaks through who is, you know, reform-minded, challenging the system, they have tended to be very successful. I mean, you go back uh, successive elections in Iran where that has been the winning candidate. That was very Rouhani, wasn't it? Seldom the Supreme Leader's candidate. That, that was what, Rouhani, what Rouhani was. Rouhani yeah. elected, you know, in 2013. And it was, I mean, not to get too deep into kind of the psychology here, but this election had the lowest turnout in uh, Iranian or the Islamic Republic's history. So typically, these elections are, are, are widely participated in. Between so were people and essentially just boycotting the election because there wasn't a Rouhani-type reformist candidate on the ticket that they believed in? The second largest share of the votes went to blank ballots, blank and spoiled ballots. Wow. Um, so there was certainly a, an act of protest here. There's also a sense of, I, I think, apathy, disillusionment. You know, uh, mm-hmm. when Rouhani was elected in 2013, it was it was a shock as well. You know, nobody had expected that this this figure was going to be able to defeat the Supreme Leader's chosen candidate. And it was interesting because in 2009, there were disputed elections and a lot of people gave up on the idea of challenging the Islamic Republic at the ballot box and the ability to have an impact on, you know, your livelihood through the electoral process. But lo and behold, in 2013, people showed up and they they kind of defied expectations and showed up in droves and managed to get Rouhani in. And he had been promising negotiations with the West and uh, easing pressures at home, you know, ending some of the human rights abuses and things like that. Um, And so now we're in a similar scenario where, uh, similar to past elections, you know, 2005 in Iran, similar situation, where there's apathy and disillusionment as well as protest keeping people from the ballot box. 
Um, but I think that anybody who's saying, well, this is a turning point and there's no way that Iranians are going to be able to impact or, or change the system uh, through organizing, through going through the electoral process. I think it's a little bit early to say that. I think that, you know, the, the next election is going to be very interesting. And I think for this election, it's really a question of why did the Supreme Leader or, you know, the powers that be, why did they decide that the legitimacy of the Islamic Republic, which they often cite these voter totals, you know, the, the mass participation as a key source of legitimacy, and instead they decided we actually don't need people to turn out. We don't need that popular legitimacy. Instead, we're going to put our guy in charge uh, right. to take a tough line with the West. And we know that there's going to be negotiations. So let's send the, you know, the biggest hardliner to the table with the U.S. because we sent the nice guy the last time and look what Donald Trump did to us. Wow, that's that's fascinating. So so I would think that even the hardliners in Iran and even, you know, the new president would be interested in getting the sanctions lifted their economy has suffered terribly under these sanctions and putting the country back together i mean it would help their popularity if nothing else how do you think this is going to play out in this in these you know revisiting these uh, negotiations with what is it the five country coalition yeah well it's currently it's you know it's the the p4 plus 1 and then the us right. is a uh, participant but they're not in the iran deal so they're not actually formal participants but um, look i think you know, the Supreme Leader wants the deal. Raisi wants the deal. For them, though, the JCPOA represented this potential, I think, existential threat to the status quo. Um, and I think for a lot of interests. I mean, I think for Netanyahu, I think for Republicans in the United States, everybody who opposed the deal, who was a player in it, um, uh, you know, had their reasons. But it was largely about keeping their grip on power, maintaining the status quo. Um, you know, for our side, you know, there are people who just want to keep Iran in the penalty box forever and have this simmering nuclear crisis uh, and kind of use that as an excuse to contain Iran and have a enlarged U.S. presence in the region. Uh, I think for the, you know, for, for the factions inside of Iran, the, the Revolutionary Guard, the, you know, sort of the, the hardliners, they were all very anti-JCPOA, very anti-Iran deal, not necessarily because of the economic benefits, because, but because by opening up the economy, um, by having this increased economic interdependence, and then seeing the, the lifting of sanctions, all of those sanctions are actually really beneficial tools for uh, those who are benefiting from a sanctions economy and those who are benefiting from Iranians being isolated from the rest of the world, not able to organize and, you know, have a robust civil society. And so for them, they want to pocket the benefits economically. So it's like a, a it's like an internal black market kind of thing that's controlled by the by the existing power structure. The sanctions right, actually right. help them, what, get richer? Help them get richer, help give them a monopoly on yeah. on the economy. You know, right. all the all the contracts in Iran are now IRGC run because they're, you know, if that's the, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, the, the, their military. Right. Right. Yeah. If doing business is a violation of sanctions, if it's a criminal activity, well, then the criminals benefit. Um, so how do you think this is this is going to play out? What's your sense of where this is going and what it means to the West? I'm a little bit less hopeful about the nuclear talks. I mean, I think I think the prevailing view for folks kind of on our side of the debate is that we are likely going to get a, a JCPOA. We're going to get a return to the Iran deal, but that's going to be the ceiling. There aren't going to be follow-on talks. There aren't going to be opportunities for greater rapprochement, at least under this government. I'm worried. I think that you know the notion that we're going to get back into the nuclear deal, JCPOA depended a lot on the personalities around the, the table and the commitment and investment by the various players, whether it was John Kerry or Javad Zarif. With so many opportunities for, uh, you know, misalignment. And, you know, I think it's going to be a much tougher uh, gamut than some people are making it out to be. The saving grace may be that it's going to be the outgoing Rouhani government who manages to negotiate the U.S. returning to the deal. And then as soon as the deal gets up and running, they have to leave office and then you get the, the right. When does that transition happen? Reaping the benefits. That's at the beginning of August. I think it's the August 8th. Okay. Fascinating stuff. Jamal Abdi, the president of the National Iranian American Council, NIAC, NIACouncil.org is the website, and uh, Jamal's Twitter handle is jabdi, A-B-D-I, or NIACouncil uh, on Twitter. Uh, Jamal, thanks. Uh, I always learn so much from talking with you. Thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. Good to see you. Thank you. Back at you. 
This is the Tom Hartman Program. Is your church preaching politics from the pulpit? How is that different from what the Iranian mullahs are all about? Seriously. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. It's the Tom Harmon University Book Club. Our book today is Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism by Ian Bremmer. This is from Chapter 1, titled Winners and Losers. It's time for a local revolution, the candidate told the roaring crowd. Countries are no longer nations but markets. Borders are erased. Everyone can come to our country, and this has cut our salaries and our social protections. This dilutes our cultural identity. Marine Le Pen's four sentences capture every important element of the anxiety rising across the Western world. The borders are open and the foreigners are coming. They'll steal your job. They will cost you your pension and your health care by bankrupting your system. They will pollute your culture. Some of them are killers. Le Pen fell short in her bid to become France's president in 2017, but her message remains compelling for the 21st century politics of us versus them. But this is not a story about Marine Le Pen or Donald J. Trump or any of the other populist powerhouses who have emerged in Europe and the United States in recent years. Spin the camera toward the furious crowd. There's the real story. It's not the messenger that drives this movement. It's the fears, often, if not always, justified, of ordinary people. Fears of lost jobs, surging waves of strangers, vanishing national identities, and the incomprehensible public violence associated with terrorism. It's the growing doubt among citizens that government can protect them, provide them with opportunities for a better life, and help them remain the masters of their fate. As of December 2015, just 6% of people in the United States, 4% in Germany, 4% in Britain, and 3% in France believe the world is getting better. The pessimistic majority suspects that those with power, money, and influence care more about their cosmopolitan world than they do about their fellow citizens. Many citizens of these countries now believe that globalization works for the favored few, but not for them. And they have a point. Globalization, the cross-border flow of ideas, information, money, people, goods, and services, has resulted in an interconnected world where national leaders have increasingly limited ability to protect the lives and livelihoods of their citizens. In the digital age, borders no longer mean what citizens think they mean. In some ways, they barely exist. Globalism, the belief that the interdependence that created globalization is a good thing, is indeed the ideology of the elite. Political leaders of the wealthy West have been globalism's biggest advocates, building a system that has propelled ideas, information, people, money, goods, and services across borders at a speed and on a scale without precedent in human history. Sure, more than a billion people have risen from poverty in recent decades, and economies and markets have come a long way from the financial crisis. But along with new opportunities come serious vulnerabilities and the refusal of the global elite to acknowledge the downsides of the new interdependence confirms the suspicions of those losing their sense of security and standard of living that elites in New York and Paris have more in common with elites in Rome and San Francisco than, than with their discarded countrymen in Tulsa, Turin, Tuscaloosa, and Toulon. The globalists gutted the American working class and created a middle class in Asia, former White House strategist Steve Bannon told The Hollywood Reporter a few days after Donald Trump's 2016 election victory. The issue is now about Americans looking not to get effed over. End of quote. In the United States, the jobs that once lifted generations of Americans into the middle class and kept them there for life are vanishing. Crime and drug addiction are rising. 
While 87% of Chinese and 74% of Indians told pollsters in 2017 that they believe their country is moving in the right direction, only 43% of Americans said the same thing. In Europe, the European Commission and the unelected bureaucrats who enforce its rules have legislated for its 28 member nations. In recent years, they've failed to halt a debt crisis that has forced many Europeans to accept lower wages, higher prices, later retirement, less generous pensions, and an uncertain future, all while telling them that they must bail out foreign countries that have spent their way into debt. In the migrant crisis, globalist European leaders insisted that all EU members must accept Muslim refugees in numbers determined in Brussels, and barricades and a spike in nationalism were the result. I'm defining nationalism here as one form of us versus them intended to rally members of one nation against those of other nations. Were the wave of populist nationalism sweeping the United States and Europe only signs of globalism's failure? It would be bad enough. But there's a larger crisis coming. Many of the storms creating turmoil in the U.S. and Europe, particularly technological change in the workplace, broader awareness of income inequality, are now headed across borders and into the developing world, where governments and institutions are not ready. Developing countries are especially vulnerable because the institutions that create stability in developing countries are not as sturdy, and social safety nets aren't nearly as strong as in the United States and the, and the European Union. They face an even bigger gap between rich and poor, and the reality that new technologies will kill large numbers of jobs that lifted expectations for a better life will be much harder to manage. In short, just as the financial crisis had a cascading effect through financial markets and real economies around the world, so the sources of anger convulsing Europe and America will send shockwaves through dozens of other countries. Some will absorb these shocks. Some of them won't. As poorer people in developing countries become more aware of what they're missing or losing, many will pick up rocks. The Failure of Globalism by Ian Bremmer. And uh, Ed in San Antonio. Hey, Ed, what's up? Everybody's pointing out that the bishops are Catholic bishops' opposition to abortion with Biden and right. the Eucharist. There's also another target, the other target being the Supreme Court. You have six or seven Catholics on the Supreme Court. Correct. And the proposal that they're doing would include them. So they're trying to tell our Supreme Court how to vote. Oh, that's, that's interesting. That's what I object to, and that's why I think people should be talking about it, because yeah. it does more than Biden. It's also directed at the Supreme Court. So let's see. Uh, Breyer, who is you know 86, is Jewish. And as far as yeah. I can recall, I don't, I don't know Kagan, if she's Catholic or Protestant, but everybody else is Catholic, isn't it? Aren't they? Yeah, well, that's what I was saying. I, mean, I wasn't really sure, but I think there were six or seven, and it only taught, takes five. Yeah, if it was Kagan, it would be eight. But uh, I, you know, but she's she tends not to vote her religion. She tends to you know vote what she thinks is right. Well, that's interesting. So, so you think, Ed, that that the subtle uh, subsidiary message or hidden message or the buried message or whatever you call it um, that these Catholic bishops were trying to convey was not just to Joe Biden, but it was to those Catholics on the Supreme Court that if you don't blow up Roe v. Wade, you may well be on the receiving end of not getting communion also. And therefore you can't go to heaven, you're gonna burn in hell forever. Or oh, Cain's Jewish also, so we've got two Jews and, and, seven and, and seven Catholics. I'm yeah. sorry, go ahead, Ed. Yeah. They could sidestep it by giving it all to the states. Yeah. Which is and what I'm betting. That would be a secondary. Yeah, I, you know, and and here's the thing, Ed. Sure. When and I'm, I was I started to say if the court, but I'm going to say when the Supreme Court blows up Roe v. Wade and tosses abortion back to the, the states, it's going to be a disaster for the Republican Party, because they will no longer have this giant bad guy that they can fight about. I've, I've talked about this before. You know, when you when you write fiction, you know, when you're telling a story. The most important character is the bad guy. Superman would be nothing if it wasn't for Lex Luthor and Kryptonite. Batman would be nothing if it wasn't for the Joker and for you know all the other you know supervillains. You've got to have a supervillain for the good guy to be good. 
the the evil defines how good the how good the good guy is and once that issue of abortion is taken away from the republicans as you know the abortion rights being the great evil and the slaughter of the children and the innocents and all that kind of stuff once that's gone right. once the supreme court takes that away from them that party is going to collapse I mean, you're going to see a lot of people who are voting Republican exclusively because they are opposed to abortion. Once that's oh, no longer that a federal issue, those people are going to stop voting uh, Republican. Yeah, I've seen that in Texas. I was outside the voting line, and the one man turned to his wife and said, is this the guy that's against abortion? Okay, we're voting for him. Right. Yeah, exactly. Single issue voters. Yeah. And so I'm, um, I'm frankly, and I, I realize that this is blasphemous to say, you know, for a liberal, but I'm actually thinking that, well, in fact, actually in, in uh, my book on the Supreme Court, I believe it was, I, I built a case that Roe v. Wade, that the court really hurt the movement for women's rights with Roe v. Wade, because at that point in time, there were a half a dozen states that had decriminalized abortion, and it was moving in that direction rapidly. And it would have just been non-controversial, as you know, and it probably would have covered the whole the whole country within a decade. But because the Supreme Court inserted themselves into that argument, it became highly political to this day. And I think when the Supreme Court yeah. extracts themselves from that argument, it's going to go back to the states, and it's going to cease to be this giant issue, and it's going to hurt the conservatives and uh, and help the progressives. We frankly. can only hope so. Well, I you know I, I think this that's the case, Ed. I really do. I mean, they'll find something else. They'll find critical race theory or something. Well, they'll I'm, find something I'm else. I'm not to worried about, about that. I'm worried about the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, I am too. And I got to run. But thank you very much for the call, Harry in Providence, Rhode Island. Hey, Harry, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I believe there is a way to pass the For the People Act with Joe Manchin's approval. And um, that is, as you know. Yeah, well, the two filibuster exceptions currently in use are for budget reconciliation and judicial appointments. Correct. And both are constitutional mandates that require congressional action. Now, here's the key. The 15th Amendment is also a constitutional mandate requiring congressional action. And it states that the right to vote shall not be denied on account of race. And in addition... It specifically states, and I quote, the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Right. Every, every so amendment my point says is that. This, yeah. So my point is this. Even if Manchin opposes getting rid of the filibuster, I believe it's legitimate to ask him to make a filibuster exception, a third filibuster exception, hmm. because like the other two, it also is a constitutional mandate that requires congressional action. Right. The problem then, Harry, will be that uh, Manchin and others will say, well, this dark money provision has nothing to do with the, the right of, of people to vote based on or not vote race, on, the challenge to their vote based on race. So we're going to keep that. I mean, they, they'll just go through and cherry pick stuff. I think probably a, a, my personal favorite strategy, if you're going to keep a filibuster for the Senate, is turn it back into what Americans think it is from watching, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, Jimmy Stewart. Now, I refer to it as the Jimmy Stewart filibuster, which is where if you're going to do a filibuster, you have to keep 40 of your allies on the floor all the time, and you have to keep talking. And the minute the number goes below 40 or the minute you stop talking, then a vote is automatically called and, and you know, and the vote happens uh, or the vote will happen the next morning or whatever. Uh, then we get to see the toxicity of their ideas as they stand up there and try to defend, you know, making it harder for people to vote or, you know, eliminating weekend voting or eliminating mail-in voting and all this kind of stuff. And I think that that will be a good thing. I, I'm, I'm encouraged about that. Harry, I got to run. I, Thank you I for the call. I agree with you, Tom. And I, I hear what you're saying. And I, I think that is a possibility. The problem is, even under that, I believe the Republicans will keep 41 people indefinitely so they they can keep their voter suppression. Act. I don't think they will, because it'll be right out in public. And I mean, there's never been a filibuster that lasted more than 25 hours. It's uh, it, it'll be right out in public, uh, to the best of my knowledge. I, mean, I may be wrong on that, you know, going back to the 18th century or the 19th century, excuse me, but you know, who was it, James Eastland? Who was the, there was some right-wing Democrat who filibustered the, uh, the, one of the civil rights bills. But it's, it's out there for everybody to see, Harry, and that's the thing. If they're going to talk for, you know, 
20, 25 hours, they're, it, we're all going to see what they're saying. And, and I, I think a lot of these things would not withstand that kind of scrutiny. But we'll see. Uh, Harry, I got to run. But thank you for the call. Jerry in Tinley Park, Illinois. Hey, Jerry, what's up? Hi, Tom. Uh, Christian nationalism, uh, an American tragedy. Yes. Uh, the evangelicals uh, have been, and the evangelical pastors have, have become a tool of the plutocrats and politicians, and it's just beautifully written about by Catherine Stewart in The Power Worshippers. Uh, and and uh, she she says that it's a political movement, uh, and and, ultim- and the ultimate goal is power mm-hmm. to serve its plutocrat funders and uh, allied political leaders. Uh, it's it's a beautiful it's beautifully done, uh, deeply deeply researched, and um, what's the title? It's the Power Worshippers. Huh. And and the, the author is Catherine Stewart. And there's another book that, that I heard about on your program, uh, The Shadow Network. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. covers uh, a lot of the same story. Right, yeah. And then, of course, you know, The Family by Jeff Charlotte, which is kind of tangential to that, but, but in, the, in, the same, in the same vein. Jerry, thank you. Thank you for that. I'll, I'll check it out. I appreciate the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. Christy in Perrysburg, Ohio. Hey, Christy, what's on your mind today? Uh, Good afternoon, Tom. A little earlier, a caller called in and made a broad statement that there are no religions that have any kind of democracy in them. Mm Mm-hmm. And I wanted to state that he is incorrect. At least there's one that I'm aware of, and that's, that's because I am one of them, and that's the Baha'i faith. Oh, interesting. We, we elect our leaders. We do not have a clergy at all. Right. You, I think to a large extent you could say that that's also true, although there is a, a hierarchical structure, but it's elected for the Unitarian Universalist movement. Yes, yes, there are there are some others. I don't know that much about how they're structured, mm-hmm. though. So, but tell me about. I I have friends who are Baha'is, but I haven't uh, really had a. Uh, have I've seen them once in the last fifteen years, and we've never really had a good discussion about their religion. Uh, you know, people who were good friends of mine decades ago, actually. But tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, first of all, we believe in progressive revelation that uh, God has not left mankind stranded. Uh, He has sent his messengers periodically over the millennia, and um, the latest one, two, were the Bab, which means the gate in English, and Baha'u'llah, which means the glory of God in English. And that was in the middle of the 1900s, just around the time that William Miller was saying, hey, Christ is going to return, and indeed, Christ did return. We do believe that. Wow. um, In the body of whom? uh, In the body of Baha'u'llah. And that that person is the founder of the Baha'i religion? Well, we count it as two founders. The Mm -hmm. Bab was the forerunner, like John Mm -hmm. the Baptist, but he was considered a manifestation of God himself. He even brought his own book. Yeah. And Baha'u'llah has written many books. Didn't so, Baha'ism come out of Islam? Yes, it just like Christianity came out of Judaism. Right. But we believe that Muhammad was a prophet of God mm-hmm. and um, foretold in the Bible even. Right. Yeah, so you elect your yeah. leaders entirely, uh, nationally, yeah. internationally? Locally, if we have nine or more adult members in a locality, we elect what we call a local spiritual assembly. Mm-hmm. And then once a year, we elect delegates to a convention in which they elect the nine members of the National Spiritual Assembly. Fascinating. Now, I understand if you were to go to Iran, you could be put to death for being a member of the Baha'i Faith? Oh, indeed. They're terribly persecuted over there. They won't even, right now, they won't even allow them to bury their dead in, in a proper cemetery, according to Baha'i law. Wow. 
it's it's terrible. How many Baha'is are there around the world, Christy? There's about six million. That's and in the United States, there's about 170,000 of us. Wow. In the United States. Well, thank you for sharing your religion with us, Christy. I'm fascinated. I appreciate the education. Great talking with you. I I hope we can continue the conversation as time goes on. Thank you, Christy. Diane in Las Vegas. Hey, Diane, what's up? Hi. I know this is a little off topic, but we got an email from Daily Coast this morning that said the newest plan for the Republicans is to make Trump Speaker of the House and then impeach, of course, you know, Biden and Harris, and that would install Trump as, as president. Wait a minute. They Run that so by me again, money. Diane. What's going to happen? Oh, they're going to make Trump speaker. Want, yes. Yeah, I've, I've seen that. impeach Biden and Harris. Oh, and then the speaker so would the, lead the charge for the impeachment. Right. <laughs> there's no, a lot of, the there's a lot of ifs in there. Becomes, the speaker is the third in line for presidency. So Correct. Oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, this and is, there was a congressman this weekend that said he wanted Biden to be a half-term president. So it all fits. Oh, geez. Yeah, this is the latest QAnon thing. Diane, thank you for the call. Amazing. We'll be back tomorrow, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Take good care of yourself. If you're in one of these uh, heat and drought zones, uh, you know, let's let's use this reality as a way of waking people up to the consequences of global climate change and burning all these fossil fuels. It ain't good for America. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.